Dark Journal podcast. I'm Janetta Sagan, and today we will be talking about an event held last month to celebrate the reopening of the public domain, sponsored by Creative Commons and the Internet Archive in San Francisco. Individuals from several different legal, advocacy, and library communities joined together to celebrate the public domain growing again for the first time in decades. This event celebrates the many new works that have joined the public domain, with several passionate guest speakers, including a keynote address by Lawrence Lessig. Our host, Miranda Rutherford, took some time to interview a few of the impressive guests and speakers. Have you ever wondered why you can find so many old books and art online? Or why there are a bunch of Disney movies based on fairy tales? That's because these works, the fairy tales, books, and art, are all in the public domain. That is, their copyright protection is no longer extended, and they're free to be used by the public. Due to legislation that extended copyright term limits, it's been a while since new works have been released into the public domain. But this year, the public finally has access to works from 1923 and earlier. I spoke with Professor Pam Samuelson from Berkeley Law to find out why. So the copyright system that uh, was adopted uh, when the country was first founded was an opt-in regime. So everything was in the public domain that was publicly available unless somebody put a copyright notice on it and basically then complied with uh, certain requirements of giving notice to the public um, about, hey, I want a copyright in this. So the overwhelming majority of uh, works of authorship went straight into the public domain, and if people didn't need it, um, that was, uh, didn't need the copyright, then it was good for everybody to be able to reuse it, and sort of it helped education, it helped uh, essentially disseminating information to the public about uh, important developments and, uh, and the like. So, um, you know, and some people were able to make a living off the um, uh, off their off their works um, uh, through copyright, and that was a good thing. But um, but the public domain was just really a kind of cultural heritage that all of us had a chance to share. So that was the norm for a very long time, uh, and actually we didn't flip from an opt-in regime to an opt-out regime. Uh, really until um, the 1976 Copyright Act. Uh, so um, now it's not even easy to put something in the public domain, even if you want to. And even if you don't need any copyright incentives, every time you take a photograph, every time you send an email to somebody, every time um, you record a little song that you, uh, that you like, um, that's a copyright-relevant act. And so the digital technology uh, regime also makes it um, more complicated um, because you can't tell when, uh, when something's in the public domain or when it's uh, not in the public domain unless there's a copyright notice on it um, that shows it's from 1923 or before. So, um, so there was uh, then under the 1976 Act, really, and some follow-on legislation, uh, a kind of, well, everything's copyrighted now, and it's really hard to put something in the public domain. Uh, sometimes people just didn't enforce it, and so that was really a big deal. And then Larry Lessig and James Boyle and others came up with this Creative Commons idea, um, and they are 
pretty intent on trying to make sure that when people want their stuff to be in the public domain, that it can be. So it was a kind of fix uh, that they invented through Creative Commons. Um, but um, there were a lot of movies and uh, other works of authorship that were... Um, that were created in the 1920s, and so in 1998, um, Congress was persuaded to pass the Sonny Bono Copyright Term Extension Act, um, and that shut off the public domain, um, not just for the Hollywood companies, uh, but for everybody. Um, so, you know, an alternative way for them to have gotten what they wanted without you know, doing such a harm to the public domain would have been you can sign up for an extra 20 years, right? You can register for another renewal of those copyright terms. But no, that's not what we got. We, we got only not only um, everything, but it was retroactive as well as prospective. Um, so that things that were about to go in the public domain um, basically were told, no, you're not going there right now. And so... Um, some of us were worried that there would be another effort by the entertainment industry to um, seek another extension of copyright. Um, but I think uh, even though Larry Lessig's attack in the Eldred uh, versus Ashcroft case um, on the 1998 law was not successful, um, I think he raised enough awareness about um, why the public domain is a really good thing and why we should allow things to go in the public domain uh, so that we didn't have another copyright term extension. But, you know, what's 20 years after um, 1998? Um, it just happens that January 1st of this year was the first time that um, some of the cultural heritage of humankind from 1923 uh, was uh, entering the public domain. A lot of organizations, creators, lawyers, and regular old people rely on the public domain. Now that new works are being released, many of these people, from organizations that support creative works like Creative Commons, to authors and creators, to copyright lawyers, gathered at the Internet Archive on Friday, January 25th to celebrate the reopening of the public domain. I traveled from Berkeley to the Internet Archive in San Francisco, California, to talk to some of the attendees and learn more about why the public domain matters and how the reopening of the public domain impacts their works. So my uh, name is Corinne McSherry and I'm the special. legal director at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Well, so we're here at a celebration of the reopening of the public domain. Um, could you tell our listeners a little bit about what the public domain entails? Sure. So I think of the public domain as kind of the really core space of our common culture. Um, usually we think of it as a legal concept as works that are not copyrightable, that aren't owned by any particular person or corporation. Um, they're available to the public. They're part of the public, um, the public domain. That's kind of why, why that idea comes from it. And it's really... Um, the public domain is actually the default. Like, what's actually owned by copyright is a relatively small amount of our larger culture. Um, but unfortunately, a lot of what's in the and uh, within copyright, as opposed to the public domain, is a lot of um, really recent works that we think about and care a lot about. Um, but public domain is, you know, public domain is Shakespeare. It's Mark Twain. It's it's laws. It's huge amounts of, of um, works. It's just no one owns, which means everyone owns, right? 
So what kind of works are we seeing now being reopened? So, huge number of works. It's actually really kind of amazing books. Um, for me, sometimes the most exciting photographs, music, um, all this stuff. I mean, it's kind of extraordinary because it's 1923. It seems like completely ancient history, and it is really sad that it's taken so long for these works to be made available. But a lot of them are, you know, works that we actually use all the time, particularly like old jazz recordings that people reuse. And in fact, you will hear people remix them. And, you, and I think we'll hear that more and more. All of a sudden, this treasure trove of materials is going to be made available. And also things like, I think with photographs, um, you've got all these photographs because this is the early days of photography still, right, in, in the 20s. And that's a, people were taking pictures of each other. And that's our history. Those are historical documents that we can now get access to and, and reuse, study, and combine in extraordinary new ways. Libraries can make them available online. So that means, for example, you might be able to find old, old, old photographs from your own family that you didn't know existed. And they were very hard to find before because they were locked up in, in a library shelf. Now they can be online, easily findable, and we can compare them. It's really going to open up a whole new, new areas of scholarship. It's going to be great. For many of the attendees, the reopening of the public domain symbolized a way for the broader public to access important information about our culture and our history. Some of the speakers at the celebration spoke about creating free and accessible audiobooks, or transcriptions of works, now in the public domain, so that those with hearing or vision impairments could access public domain works. Others spoke about the importance of releasing forgotten works, no longer in print, to complete our broader cultural archive. I'm Allison Davenport. I'm the Tech Law and Policy Fellow for Wikimedia. Uh, the Wikimedia Foundation is the nonprofit that owns and operates Wikipedia along with its sister sites. Um, most, uh, the largest one is Wikimedia Commons, which is a repository of freely licensed and public domain uh, images, movies, uh, media, essentially. And how does the reopening of the public domain impact Wikimedia's work? Well, so um, a lot of our sites rely on freely licensed and public domain uh, media in order to operate. So Wikipedia is entirely freely licensed. It's all CC BY. Um, and we like to use um, open images on, on to illustrate Wikipedia articles. Um, and so my job actually over the last four weeks has been sort of watching things get uploaded to Commons from 1923. Um, so that's been, that's been really cool. Um, and you know, it just, there's something about these things coming out that makes knowledge so much more tangible. Um, you know, a lot of learning is switching over into multimedia formats and having an article about a silent film and then a link to actually go watch that silent film is so much so much more enriching than just the article. Uh, my name is Jane Park and I'm the director of product research at Creative Commons. And so what exactly does Creative Commons do and how does it benefit creators? So Creative Commons is a nonprofit organization and we've been around for a long time. But the main thing we do is that we work to further access to information and culture and knowledge online. And we do that through a legal infrastructure, which is a set of copyright licenses that any creator or any institution can use to release their works into the public domain or put them out under um, sort of more flexible copyright use conditions. 
And how does the reopening of the public domain intersect with Creative Commons' as works? Well, the reason, the entire reason Creative Commons was founded back in 2001, 2002 was because we lost that Eldridge versus, uh, you know, <laughs> copyright whatever case that Lawrence Lessig was talking about earlier today. Um, and Creative Commons was really founded as a release valve in copyright because the public domain was getting further pushed back in terms of extension uh, years of copyright. So um, that's how it ties in. Uh, we, we were really founded as an interim solution. We weren't supposed to be around forever. But since copyright seems to be around forever, we're going to be around for as long as copyright is around. While the transfer of works to the public domain does restrict creators' rights over their works after a certain time period, creators at the celebration also spoke about why access to the public domain is critical to their creative process. Hi, my name is Cory Doctorow, and I'm a science fiction novelist and a visiting professor of practice at the library school at UNC and a visiting computer science professor at the Open University and a research affiliate at uh, MIT Media Lab. And I work with the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and I'm one of the owners of a website called Boing Boing. Wow, that's a pretty great resume. <laughs> I, I kind of feel like I don't want to give any, once I start, I don't want to stop because I don't want to give anyone short shrift. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so as an author, um, what does having the public domain reopened mean to you? Because a lot of people may argue that you want to hold on to your rights um, and make sure that you can really keep control of your works. So I think that maybe the most underappreciated element of the public domain is that it's anti-oligarchic. That we live in this era of market concentration and the fortunes of authors rise and fall with our ability to uh, find ourselves under the protection and umbrella of one of a dwindling number of publishers. We have five big publishers left, and the rumor has it that Simon & Schuster will be a division of uh, HarperCollins within the year because Les Moonves is at CBS. And, and you know, in, in buyer's markets, sellers do poorly. And the thing is that in a buyer's market, in a market where our ability to reach our audience or even to find raw material to use to make new material out of uh, is contingent on the approval of this this small coterie of, of corporate entities, um, giving us more copyright, it's like giving your bullied kid more lunch money. The bullies will just take that money too, right? If you gave authors you know, an expanded suite of rights that went on for longer, we just have to contract out of them. But by contrast, when there are things that belong to no one, right, things that are in the public domain, we can use them to make new works without having to sell our souls first to these large corporate entities that have squeezed the, the author's share of the work uh, monotonically as they've contracted. And so it's like it's not going to solve all of our problems, but it's like a tiny nudge in the other direction, in, in, in the direction of giving authors expanded control over their own destiny. My name is Brianna Schofield. I'm the executive director of Authors Alliance. Authors Alliance is a nonprofit organization based in the Bay Area, and we provide information and resources to help authors understand and manage their rights. And how does the expansion of the public domain benefit authors? Uh, there's two ways in which the public domain can be beneficial to authors. Uh, the first is just the availability of materials for authors to integrate into their own works, to use, to remix, to um, to really enhance their own creativity with the access to public domain materials without any worry about copyright infringement or um, interfering with the rights of another author. Um, 
there are other ways that this can happen for, for fair use is one example, but you have to be um, somewhat savvy and, and go to resources in order to understand um, how fair use would apply when you're using other materials that are under copyright. But when materials are in the public domain, it takes away any of those worries and um, creators can be free to work with those materials. Um, the second side of it is that um, authors themselves also benefit in many ways when their works fall into the public domain um, because other people can use and breathe new life into their works. Um, one thing that is counterintuitive to a lot of people is that authors um, may not be the owners of their own rights. So in many cases, authors um, sign over the copyright to their work to a publisher. And when that work falls out of print or is no longer commercially uh, viable, um, they often have, um, uh, they, they, they don't have the control to make that work available um, uh, themselves because the rights are in someone else's hands. So uh, we have a lot of tools, um, Authors Alliance does, to help authors regain their rights and make it available. But as a backstop to that, the public domain is um, available um, in time uh, is that it means that other people can discover and access and again use and recreate with their works when it falls into the public domain. Of course, now that works are entering the public domain once more, copyright's legal landscape has shifted. I talked with Joe Gratz, a partner at Dury Tangri in San Francisco, about how that impacts lawyers' work in the field. So I think the, the biggest way that attorneys in practice can work to preserve the public domain is to, is to encourage their clients to make use of it and to make use not just of things that have fallen into or risen up into the public domain by expiration of term of protection, but to use all of the limitations and exceptions that copyright law gives you, the fair use doctrine, uh, the limitation uh, on copyright and government works, um, limitations on uh, liability for, for service providers, um, to be able to make make greater and greater use of, of culture in ways that don't really do any harm to the economic interests of copyright holders. Now that the public domain has been reopened, will works continue to be released, or will further legislation be passed to close off works again? Professor Larry Lessig from Harvard Law School offered his perspective. Well, I think the public domain was reopened in part because everybody who would have closed it was terrified that they would poke the bear, and the bear meaning the activists who have grown up in the public domain movement would respond with vigor and anger, and, uh, and they would lose. So this is a great example of how fighting, even losing, um, creates the energy necessary to resist destruction in the future. So this is our victory today. But, you know, the more general problem of America today is that we live in the middle of this crisis of governance, um, not just about copyright, but about everything. And I fear that until we can find a way through this and a way to reform the corrupt system of government that we have, it's going to be very hard to have sensible policy in any Yet no matter what happens in the future, many works from 1923 and earlier, are already available online through websites like the Internet Archive. So go out there and party like it's 1923.
Thank you for joining today's podcast. Today's podcast was brought to you by Miranda Rutherford and the rest of the team at Berkeley Technology Law Journal. We want to give a special thanks to our guests, Professor Pam Samuelson from Berkeley Law, Corinne McSherry from the Electronic Frontier Foundation, Allison Davenport from the Wikimedia Foundation, Jane Park from Creative Commons, Corey Doctorow, Brianna Schofield from Authors Alliance, Joe Gratz from Dury Tangri, and Professor Larry Lessig from Harvard Law School. We are committed to bringing you interesting conversations involving the intersection of technology and the law. If you enjoyed our podcast, please support us by subscribing and rating us on Google Play, iTunes, or wherever you found this podcast. The music featured at the end of this podcast is called Taint Nobody's Business If I Do by Matson's Creole Serenaders, recorded in 1923 and newly available online thanks to the Internet Archive. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for our show, please contact our editor at miranda.rutherford at berkeley.edu. The views expressed by podcast hosts and guests are their own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. The information presented is not legal advice and may not be up to date. This podcast is intended for academic and entertainment purposes only. Don't get legal advice from podcasts. Talk to a lawyer.